Amen. If you will, let's bow together. Father, we, we believe that you are able, Lord, to do far beyond our imagination. Your power is limitless. Father, you are, you are the one true God in which we turn to this morning, and we ask that you would, you would speak to us, that you would move and help us Help us into an, in increasing ways embrace you in your fullness to live the lives that you've called us to, to be your salt and light in all that we do. And so, Lord, have your way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. Um, um, days like today are, are great. I've had a great, I've had a fantastic week. So I, got, I went to camp with our students and saw God do all kinds of great things in their lives. Um, we had, I know for, for our students, we had 20 of our students give their lives to Christ this week, which was, was really, really exciting. And uh, so came, yeah, there we go. That is always worthy. And... Uh, and then, uh, and they came home, and last night, James Thomas Talbert is now married um, to Julia, yeah. And so, did his wedding last night in Akron, and we partied, and it was fun, and uh, I am so proud of James Talbert, and I know he's not here today, so that's why I'm saying it. No one's saying it in front of him. I'm so proud of James, and... Uh, I think last night it was just solidified. I love him so much, and we are so blessed to have him as a part of our body and um, to be a part of this great kingdom movement that God is doing in our region. And so when you, when you see James next time, give him a big hug, kiss him on the cheek, tell him congratulations. Seriously, kiss him on the cheek. It'll creep him out. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so it's been, a, it's been a great week. Next service, I, I get to baptize my daughter and so it's just a good, it's a good. And the Lord just told me like down front that I'm going to divert from my notes today. So that's creeping me out. So um, to, this series that we're in is called Saturate. And really the heart of this series is really, I, I believe, I hope, the heart of God. Um, in Habakkuk 2.14, scriptures say, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the seas. One of the things that we know about God is God makes promises and God keeps promises. There's never been a promise that God made that God did not keep. And God is, one of his promises is that there will be a day where his, where his grace, where he covers the earth. His grace does as the water covers the seas. And really our prayer, our hope is in this part of the world that God has placed us and beyond, that his glory, that his grace would cover Stark County as the water covers the sea. And that really takes all of us, the church, not a location, the church being the church, to see in every place, in word and deed, every man, woman, and child having a daily encounter with Jesus because the church is in motion and in movement in all places and spaces of our culture and our society. Last week we talked about, we're talking about the seven pillars of society, which in order for us to really see gospel saturation, it means that in every facet of society we embrace our position and our place as believers. 
Um, we talked last week about education, coming to the conclusion that all of us, every person in this room is an educator in some form or fashion, that people are learning by watching you, observing you, by what you say, and by, by what you do, we are educating and teaching. This week, we're going to talk about religion. Now, every culture that's ever been somewhere makes a decision on what they believe about God. And what they believe about God, what they believe about hope, what they believe about future, it shapes and forms that culture or society. In Isaiah 46, the Bible says, Remember, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, and saying from ancient times the things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Bob Coughlin wrote a book on worship, and in it, there's his, this is his definition of worship. While it's simplistic to say worship is love, it's a fact that what we love most will determine what we genuinely worship. So a great question that we can ask ourselves is, what is it that you love most? And when you answer that question, it will inevitably come to the conclusion of that which you worship right? In our lives, functionally, it works out that if I love my children most, my life will look like worship toward them. Everything I say, everything I do, my emotions, everything in my life will function on what that thing I love most is doing. If I love money, right now I'm scared to death, right? With all kinds of crazy economic things that happened in Europe, right? We live in a crazy time where a tiny little country like Greece right, can, it, can change my economic future forever. Well, not mine, because I don't have any money, but <laughs> possibly yours, right? I'm good. It doesn't really matter. So, uh, and so, so in this, as, as we think about our life, as we think about our worship, the question is, and I want to read it again. He says, well, it's simplistic to say worship is love. It's a fact that what we love most will, will determine what we genuinely worship. In that Isaiah 46 passage, there's, there's three things that we see about God. We see that there is one God. It says, I am God and there is no other. That God is independent and unchangeable. It says, I am God and there is none like me. And we see that God is eternally existent and all-knowing. It says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. There is one God. He reigns forever. And he is, he is a true God. There, and just so we're clear, there's not a Muslim God and a Mormon God and a Jehovah Witness God and all these different world religions. Buddhists actually don't even have a God, right? There's no Shinto God. There's no, we, we don't have, there, there is one true God. And not all these different places like climbing a mountain, getting to the same God, a different aspect of him. I don't believe this. The Bible does not teach this. There is one true God. He reigns forever. He sent his one and only son into this world to die a criminal's death on a cross in our place that we might have atonement, redemption, forgiveness of our sins. And he was risen, he rose from the dead. He is seated on high and he reigns and rule forever. And that one true God has given us the ability to have peace with him again. And this one true God is the one in which we must choose, will I worship him? And so when we talk about pure religion, which is the sermon is titled today, is pure religion. There is one pure religion, and that one pure religion is one 
And then we're going to look at a text in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, 22 through 25. When we look at this one pure religion, this one pure religion has one apex, one thing that is central to it, and everything before and after this right, is affected by it, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is what is, signifies and changes everything within the faith. And before we read the text, in 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul will say it like this, I have decided to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Have you made a decision in your life that you are, you are going to major on one thing when it comes to the faith, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ? For some of you, you may say, well, Ryan, that's way too simplistic. And we'll see in this text that many said that it was far too simplistic. You are far too intelligent for only a cross to be what identifies you in the faith. Some of you will say, well, there's, there's more, Ryan. There, there's more that you have to do, which many of the religious would say in that time too. But I am posing to you, and so is the scripture, that the cross of Jesus Christ, it is the central theme, the central affection, the central idea central to all things in regards to pure religion. Titus 2, 11 through 15, says it like this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, how did the grace of God appear, bringing salvation for all people? Through the cross of Jesus Christ. He came. He died on a criminal's cross. He was resurrected. He ascended on high. He reigns and rules forever. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Every person in this room, through Jesus Christ, salvation is available to you, to us. But it doesn't end there. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So the gospel saves. But then it continues and says, training us to renounce ungodliness and to live righteous and holy lives. See, the key to the Christian faith is the cross. And it's becoming so fixed on the cross and so fixed that I'm recognizing in my life that I can, I have nothing outside of him. That all faith is from him, that all life is from him, that everything that I have is from Jesus. And because of my gratefulness to him, I love him more than I love my sin. I love him more than I love the stuff in this world. And my love for him grows so much that I begin to push away all those other things. And so one of the things you won't hear from me from this stage is I'm not going to tell you the five things that Christians should do and the ten things that Christians shouldn't do. One, because I believe that if you will focus your life on the cross of Jesus Christ, you will want to do excessively all the things that he wants you to do. And you won't desire to do those things anymore. Because you, it, it would wound you in your heart to think that you would dishonor your Lord and your Savior more than anything else. And when you do, that there would be deep grief over your disobedience and repentance and a return back to him. But love and a recognition of the cross, this is why there's these words throughout the New Testament. These words like, seek him, set your mind on him, abide in him, remain in him, behold him. Read the New Testament and look for those words. And what you will see is they are over and over and over. The greatest issue that each of us have in our lives is losing focus 
and losing sight of the cross, I promise if you are right now embedded in sin in your life, you have lost sight of the cross and what, it, what Jesus has done for you. Very few teenagers that are caught up into drugs and alcohol, they're having, having relationship before marriage, and on and on and on, pretty sure in those moments they are not thinking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Pretty sure in your own life, in those moments as a mom or dad or as a husband or a wife or in relationship with your friends or others, in those moments of sin, those moments of going out on your own, Pretty sure in those moments, I know it's true for me, maybe it's not you, maybe you guys are really awesome, but I've lost sight of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the central theme of the faith, and if we ever lose sight of it, we will move from the pure religion that we have been called to, and we will move into something false. That thing we move into will look hypocritical, and it will be malformed in in presentation by our lives. So let's read together 1 Corinthians 1, 18, 22 through 25. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, we're going to kind of skip a little section and we'll go back to it. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, it's on the screens if you want to follow, very small. And he is the head of the body, the church. That's not right. So I probably sent that into them wrong. So you can just take that down, and if you want to follow, there's a Bible in front of you. You're not going to have it on the screens today. So we're going back to the dark ages. All right. <laughs> have to actually look at a, a book. So First uh, Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weaknesses of God is stronger than men. So in this text, what's happening is there's been this argument that Paul establishes the church in Corinth, and then what happens is they begin to divert from the central teaching. And as they divert from this central teaching, he's going to write a letter back. And really, this entire letter is a pretty strong rebuke into where they've moved. And really, through the whole book, it's somewhat offensive because Paul is saying, you are just mere infants, you, you act as though you're mature, you act as though you're a grown-up, but in how you see things and the reason, the way you're acting, you're merely a child. Really, right before this text, there's this argument, some follow this man, some follow that man, some follow this man, he was baptized by him, he was baptized by him, it'd be like, hey, I was baptized by Ryan, I was baptized by Mike, Mike has this set of teachings, Ryan has this set of teachings, I'm holier because I was baptized by Mike because Mike's a holier guy than Ryan is, right? It's that kind of thing. Better not have that division up in here, right, Mike? We're together. So, uh, and so, so in this, there's this divisions, and so 
Think about it like this. I don't know if you had these moments in your life. I was 17 years old, and I had my first, like, real summer job, and it was hard labor. I, I painted high-structure steel. And so at grain elevators, there's this, they call it a leg, and it takes all the grain up to the top, about 100, 150 feet, and then it has spouts that go out, and it puts it in grain bins. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody seen them? So we would go to the top. We would repel, which was an awesome job at 17. We would repel off the top, and we would sandblast. And so the sandblast hose was that, about that big around. So it was air and sand, and it would rip off the rust and the paint. And then we'd go right back over and paint it. So that was my job. Um, excessively dangerous. Would not advise anyone to do that. Um, anyway, there's all kinds of things about that. But, but one, one of the things, it was, it was, I don't know if you noticed this, it was actually very, very dangerous what we were doing. And the sandblasting was probably the most dangerous part because there's this like caterpillar engine with a compressor pushing sand up this big hose and it's coming out really, really fast. So if that sand hits your flesh, and I don't know if you know what happens, but it just goes deep into it, Right. And so at one point in the summer, I lost control of the hose. It flipped all around. I got it up my arm, and then it just kind of sat on my leg putting sand inside of it. I've got a really cool scar here. If we ever go swimming together, I'll show it to you. (laughs) Scars are cool, right? And so so I have this, and so I go to the doctor, and, you know, it's like turning green instantly. It's really bad. And the doctor says, there's only one thing you can do. You just have to, like, scrub brush it. Like, you've got to get the sand out. So anyway, my pain tolerance was quickly increased at that moment, but I was not supposed to work for a week. And my dad calls me, and he said, hey, Ryan, um, it's the middle of the week, and so I'm, I'm loving it. I'm in the air conditioning. I'm in the house. I'm not working out, doing that stuff anymore. My dad calls and says, Ryan, I need you to help me today. I need you to move a tractor from this farm to this farm. And in the moment of manhood, for the first time in my life, in my head, I thought, does he not know I'm injured? Does he not know that I, the doctor told me to take a break? And I said one word, two letters that I'd never said to my dad ever before in my masculinity at 17. I said no. And my dad walked in the house about five minutes later. (laughs) He looked across the room at me. And in 10 minutes, I was on a tractor driving it to another farm. (laughs) Right? It's this moment where I think I'm a man. And I am quickly reminded that I am just a mere infant. Oh, daddy, don't kill me, right? Like that, that was that moment. And so, so this is a little bit of how they would have felt. It was this moment for the Corinthians of, man, we are something. We've got it together. And what Paul is going to say to them is, no, you've missed it altogether. It was that moment where my dad said, just looked across the room, and I knew that I had acted like, like a baby, not like a man. Obviously, when you heard the story, you realize that. So what we see in the text is the first thing is the cross is the power of God displayed. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. So the word of the cross is folly. We're going to deal with that in just a minute. But to those who are perishing, now with this word perishing, these are those that are condemned to death, hell, and judgment because they have not repented and turned to Jesus Christ. Now, I, I hope we recognize the stakes couldn't be higher for our life. There is something far greater than my bank account hitting zero that is, that is going to be pressing in on my life. 
and that is my eternal destiny with or without Jesus Christ. And just so you know, what we believe as a church, we believe there is a hell. And it brings us no joy in thinking of that. It actually propels us to proclaim this gospel message so that none would perish and all come to everlasting life in Jesus. I made a commitment, like, early in ministry. I heard people talk about hell a lot, and I I wondered why they never cried about it. Because it was almost like, I don't know, there was some sort of joy that I get to go to heaven and you get to go to hell. I'm not saying every pastor is that, but I heard some like that. You need to know from me, it deeply grieves my heart to think about anyone perishing without Jesus as their Savior, and I hope it does you too. That we take no joy in the death of the wicked, but hope that they would turn to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and be saved as I have been, because I deserve death and judgment. I sit with the wicked, but I have been redeemed. I have been set free. And that is my hope and longing for them. So it says, to those who are perishing, those condemned to death, hell, and judgment. But it says, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's not the work of man. It's not our own work. This is the plan of God. Romans 5, 6. For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, the preaching of the cross and this message of the cross, it is an offensive message. And the reason it's an offensive message And the reason it's always been an offensive message and the reason it always will be an offensive message is because it proclaims that each and every one of us are lacking in and of ourselves. And what it says is that it calls us to submission. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to feel in my life like I've got it together and that Ryan Johnston is sufficient to do all things. And I... I'm kind of prideful, right? I, I don't know if you are. At times I can be like God's trying to kill this in my life. But this call to submission, I like to have control. I, I like to be in charge. I, I, like, I like to know what's happening next. And what the gospel calls us to is it, it calls us to something, to something else. It calls us to submission. It calls us to recognize that in and of myself, I, am, I do not have what it takes. It is, I cannot work my way to God. I need someone else. Do, do you see that love has been shown and proven for you? And this love redefines everything for us. See, the cross is foolishness to those who are preparing, but to those that are saved. See, this is the power of God. The cross is the power of God displayed. He has displayed his complete power by coming and doing the very thing that we could not do and giving us the ability to be turned right back to God. Because you and I, we were created in his image to live out his ways, and we have chosen a different way. We have rebelled from him. We have not submitted to him, but we've ran our own direction. Just as Adam and Eve did, so do we. And in running our own direction, we have rebelled from his authority, We have not submitted to him, the one who loves us and cares for us and has a far better way for us than we have for ourselves. And he knew this. He knew that we were insufficient in and of ourselves to work our way to him. So he sent his one and only son into this world to redeem us. 
to make a relationship with the Father available to him, to him. And through repentance and faith and turning to him, we can be made right, as Linda so well said it in her baptism today. And in being made right with him, now he desires to recreate and change me. And recreate and change me, meaning living in, in recognition of my lacking in his complete sufficiency. In living in submission, humbly underneath him. Living my life for his name and his glory. See, it's more than just saying, waking up in the morning and saying, Hallelujah, I love you, thank you for salvation. But there's something we have to add on to that. It's hallelujah, thank you for your salvation. I love you. I'm yours. See, that I'm yours is really important. Because what it's saying is, like, I am insufficient. I don't have what it takes. But I'm yours, and so use me in any way you see fit today. It's a giving of ourselves over to him. It's called lordship. It's called completely laying ourselves before him. So the cross is the power of God displayed, but we see that this is, again, it is folly to those who are perishing, and it expresses itself in two ways in this text. It says the cross is a stumbling block to the religious. The cross is a stumbling block to the religious, and this would have been to the Jews. To the Jews, the cross was the tree of shame and horror. A crucified person was cursed by God and a criminal. To, to the to the Jews, they thought a crucified Messiah seemed to the Jews to be kind of a revolting craziness. Isaiah 53 and Isaiah and Psalm, Psalm 22 were two texts that they couldn't figure out because they, 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 they truly believed that, that the Messiah would come with great power and great glory. And this power and glory would bring a kingdom immediately, that he would come in all of his splendor, riding on a horse with, with, a, with a great entourage behind him. But he came meeting our needs in a different power, in a different glory, that for all time and eternity will be more glorious and more powerful than anything else. They were looking at it through the wrong lens. They were looking at it from a human point of view. They were supernaturalists. They needed something more fantastic than a savior on a cross. Doesn't that even, to me, just sounds crazy. Something more fantastic than their savior on a cross. Maybe you would find yourself in this situation, a stumbling block to the religious the cross might be for you. If you feel like you have it together, you live in self-dependency, you boast in your Christian activity. You impose on others what you excel in. That would be my definition of self-righteousness. That if you go to church a lot and you look around this, you know, terribly, your terribly wicked neighbors who don't much, and you'd go, hmm, they go to church more, they'd be a lot better off. I wish they were more like us because we're awesome, Right? I'm the best. You know, I wish people studied there, went to as many Bible studies as I do. I got it together. Now, here's the thing. I, I think it's good for people to go to church. I want people to go to church. I, I, I want people to come worship. I want people to study their Bibles. But when I begin to boast in what I excel in and impose it on others to make myself feel better, that is like the, the definition of the self-righteous. And when we find ourselves in this, what we, be, what we tend to do is we begin to turn toward the own power of our works 
rather than resting in the power of the cross. Are you with me? And what happens in that is we, we stop believing that only, only through the cross am I made right with God. None of my activity. My activity is just a response to what he's done in grateful love. See, at times we can lose sight of our own insufficiency. And if we're religious, typically, and sorry, those of you who are religious, you won't even see it today. Typically. You'll just say amen really loud to the preacher. But if we really do inventory of our life, and I would say if you've been around the church for a while, it's there somewhere. And it's something we have to constantly deal with inside of our own flesh. Then, to continue, it's the cross foolishness to the intellectual. This would be to the Greek. At this time, the Greeks would have, there would have been 50 different kind of thoughts of philosophy. And these philosophies would have been argued in, in the court squares and the different places. And the, if there was a simple answer, the philosophers would have said, well, that can't be the answer because it has to be more complex because we are the wise Greeks. And for us to be the wise Greeks, we must have very, very complex answers. And so for the Greeks, the cross was foolishness to these intellectuals. There's nothing wrong with being an intellectual, but what we see with the Greeks is the cross was foolishness to them. And what was their greatest hindrance? What he says in the text was their intellectualism. Prideful logic and deduction was their guide. To the Greeks, the cross was a scaffold of a slave's infamy and a murderer's punishment. And for them, the worship of a crucified criminal seemed to the Greeks to be an appalling superstition. It was ridiculous to think that a man who was crucified would be a savior to them. It was logically irrational. They saw it from a human point of view, and in some ways, the cross was too simple for them. And way to look into our own lives, if your intellect is what you boast in, your reasoning is your guide, if all others are insuperior to your intellect, you may find yourself with the Greeks. And the reason that you don't tell anyone that you're not buying into this faith is because maybe sometimes you're looking for something more complex when it is simple that you are a sinner and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And without him paying the penalty for your sins, you will pay the penalty yourself. And you will be separated from God for all time and eternity. And you will not live in his peace in this world, nor will you forever in eternity. Maybe that's too simple. But I will tell you that is the most complex thing in all the world that God has chosen to do to redeem us. And he has made it so simple that the most common person and the darkest place in this world can understand it and repent and turn in faith to him. And the greatest intellectual and acceptance of it can turn in faith and come to him. Our God is wise and his wisdom is far beyond what we could ever, ever dream, think, or imagine. At times we can be again, to de deceive to think our own intellect is what God is most concerned about rather than our love for him and our affection for him through his word. So for the Jew and the Gentile, they are both powerless in regards to any knowledge of wisdom outside of God. And at the end of the day, what the scripture says is they are fools. 
The cross is the power of God to those who are saved. The message is the same for the Jew and the Greek, and what Paul is going to say is, I'm not changing it. And they'll say in verse 21, from the foolishness of preaching, from the foolishness of the preaching of the cross. And what he's saying is, I am resolving in my life to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. My message is the cross of Jesus Christ. If you are a person or if you have ever been involved in divisions in the church, which Paul is going to talk about. What he's really talking about in this, I I promise you the the reason there are divisions in this church and any church is because someone at some time makes something the issue rather than the cross. It is the unifying message of the church. And I've been a part of church splits and I've had plenty of people ticked off at me in ministry. And I promise you what they're ticked about is personal preferences imposing on me something they think I should be or do rather than glorying in the cross of Jesus Christ. See, for me, I, I, I got a central message. I made a decision. A guy said to me a long time ago in ministry, Ryan, you're going to be known for something. Every preacher is. You got a funny preacher, right? You got the deep preacher. You got the Bible preacher. You got, what, what are you going to be? And so I decided in my life, I got a doctorate in expository preaching because I wanted to teach the Bible. And that's why I got it, because I wanted to be an expositor of God's word. And simply, if you were at James' wedding last night, if you've been at a funeral I've done, if you've stood here, the central message in which I will proclaim my whole life and my whole ministry is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that salvation only comes through him. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. The cross is our only hope. And give me a group of people that are cross-eyed and we will change this world. There we go. Cross-eyed. I don't even know where that came from, so there you go. So through the cross, cross, there is power, power to forgive sins, power to transform lives, power to heal the past, power to bring a future hope. So you can can bring anyone in this church, and they can expose to us the deepest truths of the book of Ecclesiastes. They can expose to us all the intricacies of end times and Daniel and Ezekiel. They can explain to us all these things, and those are all wonderful things. But if they do it without the cross, and you are puffed up in all kinds of wisdom, and you miss the cross, you will go straight to hell knowing a ton about God. See, the cross is the apex. It is the point of Ezekiel. It's the point of Daniel. It's the point of the old. It's the point of the new. It's the point of today, the cross of Jesus Christ. Pure religion and people who embrace it are still today and every day and will forever in this life and forever in eternity be enamored and compelled by the cross of Christ. The power, again, has the power to forgive sins, transform lives, heal the past, and bring a future hope. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Jesus in the cross See, is, and then the text, what it concludes with is, is God foolish or weak? I'll tell you this, the more I look at him, the more I realize I am foolish and I am weak and he is not. So don't tell me that the gospel is foolish or weak. It is not. It is powerful. 
It is powerful because I know and I've seen in my own life and many of your lives and many others' lives how powerful the gospel is to transform and change a man or a woman to be something they could have never been on their own. So embracing pure religion, three things, and we'll be done. Embracing pure religion, three things that might help us as we walk away today. First is let the cross be the lens in which all of life is seen through. In every conflict, in every issue, in every relationship, allow the cross to be the the reason and the motivation for how you engage and how you behave in all things. Second, let the cross be the message you proclaim. If your life, now I'll say this instead of saying if if you're going to be a preacher, you're going to be known for something. Every one of you in this room is known for something. When people talk behind your back, right? Nobody talks behind my back, right? But, except at lunch on Sunday. And so, um, uh, so, so if you're going to be known for something, what is it you're known for? I mean, I'm, I'm really happy the Cavs won. I, I may have been hugging a man up and down, jumping up and down, when that happened, right? And my wife may have videotaped that. But I don't want to be known for that. I don't want to be, that, that's not the apex dream of my life, because that stuff's all going to fade. That trophy's going to go away. What are you going to be known for? I want to be known that Jesus Christ, I want to be known as a man who deeply believes in the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want to unashamedly tell people about him and all that I do, in my deeds and in my words, and both equally at any given time. And the third, let the cross be the ultimate hope for your life. Taking inventory of that which I worship. Am I finding hope in my treasures? Am I finding hope in my family? Am I finding hope in anything that is perishing? And casting it aside and saying the cross is going to be the ultimate hope in my life. This apex event that happened years and years ago in ancient times, will be what we worship forever and eternity. The scars of him who was slain, worthy is the lamb. And I want my life to ring true. The cross is the ultimate hope in my life, today and forever. So pure religion is embracing the love of Jesus displayed through us, through the cross, leading us into relationship with the one true God who is independent and unchangeable, eternally existent and all-knowing. For us, we now boast in the power of the cross and in, in the pure religion that is found in it. The cross is where we find our hope. It is in the cross in which we boast and we center our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize this morning that you are the one true God. You are eternally existent. You are all-knowing. You are far above us and far beyond us. And so this morning, Lord, would you lead us into greater faith, into a pure faith and pure religion. Lord, would you rid us of some of the infant things that we're maybe even not aware that we're doing. Lord, the things that we major on, the way we even pose ourselves in argument or against one another, Lord, help us, unify us 
the power of the cross. Lord, we believe your word is true, every bit of it. And Jesus, we believe that none of it can be understood without your sacrificial death on the cross. So Lord, help us to see all of life through you. Help us to be your disciples and to live this out in every place we go and everything that we do that, that your grace may saturate every piece of this world that you'll place each of us in. Today, tomorrow, and the next day, and the next until you return. Help us to be motivated by your gospel by the cross. And to those who have never turned to you, Jesus, today, would you give them the strength as we sing this last song to place their faith in you, to repent of their sins, to believe in the full work of the cross of what you've done on their behalf, and to give their life to serve you forever. And for those of us who have, Lord, help us to abide, to seek, to set, to behold, to remain in you above all things, that we might glorify you to the fullest with our lives. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand, and as we stand, they're going to lead. And if you want to come to the altars and pray, they're open and free for you to do so.